2 has entered the podcast. Welcome, welcome back, people, to Player 2 Has Entered the Podcast, that show about video games, gaming news, and playing games. I'm your host, Michael, a.k.a. MC Paperstacks. This is our off week, so we are covering the backlog. And just as I had alluded to a couple of weeks ago, we're going to go ahead and go through some of the games that I've been playing the past couple of weeks, as well as discussing the main backlog game. Before I get into all of that, look forward to next week, Gaming News. We're going to have a previous guest on that we've had on before. King Thugless will be joining us, and that should be a really good time. Without further ado, let's get into what I've been playing. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been getting into a couple of games mainly. The first one would be Cult of the Lamb. I've played it prior, but I haven't had a chance to really get into it yet, so I figured I'd go ahead and do that today. I really did Call to the Lamb. I had a lot of fun with it. It's published by Devolver Digital, and they typically do quality work with the developers that they work with. For those who are uninitiated, it's kind of a dungeon crawler slash town management sim, but obviously it's more of a cult. There are some like demonic themes. Essentially, you're a lamb, an actual lamb, about to be slaughtered, and you're saved by an air quotes god who was actually chained and bound by the four other main gods in the story. And they're all just really large beasts who have a theme of having one of their sensory organs removed along the lines of see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, think no evil. So there'll be actual visual indicators on the gods themselves to differentiate them. And they oversee four separate themed dungeons. And the themes are actually pretty creative, at least more so than you would expect from something with this limited of a scope. But the real draw for me was just developing followers by saving them in dungeons or in other ways as you come across them in the story. Developing the base, you'll have temple where you'll preach a sermon to indoctrinate them. And the more loyalty that they have, the more power that you gain, the more things that you can do to make it easier for you to go through dungeons. You typically have to go through the same dungeon a few times to take care of some mini-bosses and come back and then leave again. And then eventually, after I think three or four mini-boss attempts, you then get to take on the big bad of that particular dungeon. For me, I played it on PS5, and it was really buggy, especially in the beginning, pre a particular patch. Often when I tried to do rituals where I could bring followers back, sacrifice them, have a day of feast, because you have to manage their health, their hunger, and their loyalty. So a lot of different rituals that you gain access to throughout the game, you'll want to do them often. So having the game completely crash during rituals wasn't great. And that was mostly solved post-patch, although it did happen to me right at the end after I beat the game, which I thought was just poetic. Also, little things like you eventually can farm for food because, again, you need to feed your followers. And you can automate where followers will farm for you and put what they collect into a box. Often I would find that I couldn't open the box sometimes or some of the plots of land I couldn't farm myself. They were like stuck. And usually if I restarted the game, it would fix itself. I have a hunch that maybe putting it in rest mode sometimes may have activated those glitches, but I'm not 100% sure. 
Either way, I've heard from folks who played it on PC and other platforms that they didn't really have any issues, so this could be something exclusive to the PS5, I'm not sure. Bugs aside, I had a really good time with it. I thought it had a really good mix of challenge and reward. I found that I was engaged enough to, you know, have to try. And there was, I think the third boss in particular gave me a bit of trouble just because of their patterns. But overall, I was able to get through it with a decent amount of effort and I felt accomplished at the end. As far as people, if you're interested in playing the game, and I think if you like dungeon crawlers, or like I've spoken on in the past, you like a game that has mechanics that play off of each other, because definitely what you do in your little village with your cult benefits you in the dungeon and vice versa, I think this would be a great game to pick up. I would say in the beginning, don't get too attached to your villagers until you start to understand the mechanics more. Be okay with letting them go. Immediately go for developments in your town that allow you to properly bury your villagers and eventually use the uh, bodies for fertilizer because they grow old and die like all the time. (laughs) And you can bring them back and that's a pretty cool mechanic because as they level up and they're brought back, they'll get older and older. But when they're brought back, their bodies are young again. So you might have a villager end up being like 100 years old, but they'll look young. But eventually they get older and they pass away. And if their bodies are left unattended, that will make your villagers sick. So again, there's there's a lot of management to go on. And my tip would be really look ahead in the tree of things that you can add to the game. Look at managing a decent sized farm, getting homes upgraded enough to where you don't have to constantly repair them. Because homes other than like the top tier home will break down And again, if villagers don't have anywhere to rest, they're going to get pretty crabby with you. So (laughs) that's something to manage. And then once you have a better grasp on the mechanics, then you can decide what you want to do with your villagers. What I ended up doing is they have positive aspects and negative aspects. So any villager that I had come into the fold, so to speak, that I saved, I would not name them or change their name, I should say if they had negative traits. And that was an indication to me that if they passed away or if something happened, I could just let them lie. And then the villagers that had all positive traits or traits that I wanted, I would name myself, usually my friends and and family and whatnot. And then that way I would have an indication visually of bringing them back because you can look at all of your villagers stats. It's a little hard to differentiate though. And it can be cumbersome when you end up having like 15, 20, 25 villagers. I think at the most I had like 20 something. It can be hard to figure out who's who and who's good at what. You might have a villager that levels up fast. You might have a villager that farms better or that worships better. There are villagers who are not afraid of death and actually are okay when people pass away or when they quote unquote ascend. And that actually gets us into the rituals because that's another thing. You get to pick usually what feels like a good version of a ritual and a bad version, depending on what kind of cult leader you want to be. And sometimes you have access to both. Like I had access to sacrifice a villager for follower points and stuff, but I also had an option to help them ascend, which basically they kind of float up to like a heaven-like state. So if a villager turned on me and he started bad-mouthing me to other people, I'm like, well, you're ascending today, (laughs) which took care of that problem. If villagers do turn on you, you have the option to re-educate them, but I find it takes too long. So my other tip is if a villager turns on you, 
take them out immediately. Just do a ritual to remove them. You can bring them back if it's a villager you like, and when they come back, they will no longer be turned against you. So that's another good tip for that game. Overall, I'd recommend it. I had a really good time with it. I think I probably spent around 25 hours with it, if I had to guess. I haven't looked at it in a while. Not hard to get all of the trophies or achievements if you're into that sort of thing, but also not a big deal if you don't want to get them. There's plenty of game there to play without that extra incentive. Moving on, I picked up a game that I got last year but never got around to playing, Ease 9, Monstrum of Nox. Derek and I have both discussed our love for Ease 8, Lacrimosa of Donna, and how good that game is. So I came into this game obviously wanting to compare it to the previous installment. And I think that's where I really started to notice the breakdown of an Ease game. Now, I probably mentioned this too, but Ease is a bit of a budget JRPG, and that doesn't mean that it's not good. It's just you can tell when they cut corners in animation, in voice acting, because there's voice acting, but not as much as you think there should be. And then just overall polish, right? Again, when it comes to the gameplay, like the fighting and the mechanics that matter, it's rock solid. And that was true in Ease 8, and that's true here in Ease 9. With Ease 8, they drop you on an island, and your whole goal is to explore the island, find survivors, and then the more survivors you find, the more of the island that you have access to. And then eventually, you have access to moves that give you more mobility, like a double jump or climbing or gliding, whatever, things that help you get around. It feels very Metroidvania-esque in that respect. It really just, building the village and having a cohesive support base and being able to like look at different parts of the island and explore it in its entirety, that was enough of a drive for me until the story was able to hook me. And that's one of the weaker parts, I feel like, with ease, in my personal opinion. Because it wasn't until, I'd say, like 70-80% into the game where I was finally like, okay, I'm invested. I actually care what's going on with these characters. And I find that the same rings true with Ease 9, where the setup is you visit this town. It's actually known for its large prison, which is interesting. And you immediately get pointed as a person of interest, and they just throw you in jail. And when you try to escape, you're approached by a person who without your consent, just imbues upon you a curse slash gift of becoming what they call a monstrum, where you can transform and you have increased attack power and mobility and you can learn fighting moves and different stuff like that. So that's like your source of power. And you realize that there are five other characters in the game that are also monstrums. And this carries over from Ease 8 because in Ease 8, you could play as a party of three, and pull from a pool of six playable characters. And they're doing the same exact thing here. Also, just like Ease 8, you have three different damage types. You have Slash, Pierce, and Crush. I might be remembering what it's actually called wrong. But essentially, all of the enemies that you fight may or may not have a weakness to one of those three attack types. So having a team that's balanced in those attack types is key if you want to have the edge in battle. One cool thing they did in this game, which I don't think they did in Ease 8, is they have items you can equip to change your attack type. So if you're partial to a particular character, but that character's attack type mirrors another character you want to use, you can adjust their attack type and allow to have both characters and still have a strategically effective team, which is good. 
the story itself is kind of weak. There's this other dimension where monsters attack and you get pulled there by the leader who gave you the curse. And some people don't really understand her. Others are openly hostile to her. And it seems like she gave them their curse slash gift the same way she gave it to you without your consent. And you actually meet the real world counterparts of these monstrums throughout your travels in this game. In fact, each chapter seems to be dedicated to introducing an additional character to add on to the roster. You quickly form a base in this abandoned inn and any characters that you help that are not playable characters but still important or named NPCs will probably eventually join you at this base. And it's a bar as a front, but obviously it's also where you go to plan your outings and to fight these monsters that are trying to come in from this other dimension. Since you escaped from prison, however, and since the very nature of monstrums would garner interest from the local knights and prison guards, you're typically on the lam, and a lot of the things that you do, you wouldn't want to be seen by the public. So there's this bit of this, like... Batman vigilante-esque Robin Hood weirdness going on because you're doing good deeds and you're gaining the support of the townspeople, but you can't really openly show yourself to the town's authority, so to speak. I mean, even the main character has to dye his hair because he's so known by his red hair, which I found to be kind of interesting. Another cool thing about this is just like an Ease 8 where you gain mobility options, each monstrum has a unique gift, quote-unquote. The main character, Adol... He can zip to predetermined points on the map, usually really high up, like the edges of buildings, stuff like that. In dungeons, zip up to like different levels or heights or perch points. Another character is more cat-like, and their ability allows you to run up walls. And when monstrums group into like the same team, so as you pull in team members to actually help you, they gain your gifts and you gain theirs. So any character can do any gift of any monstrum in the party. Eventually you get the gift to be able to glide around with wings. You get a gift to be able to see hidden items or things that you wouldn't be able to see with the, you know your normal naked eye. And that really helps with exploring because another thing that Ease does well is if it has an open environment, there are various collectibles. There are points of interest that you can report. There's map percentage that you can report. And there are collectibles throughout the map and treasure chests. And whether you get the treasure directly through a chest or you collect enough of item X and report it to a particular NPC, you get rewarded that way. So there's constantly like something to do. And because you're not out and about, especially in the beginning because you're confined by the story, the dimensional pockets where monsters can attack appear all over the place. And so anytime you want to get into a battle, you can by just touching one of those points. And then, of course, as the story progresses, there'll be like larger battles that are more like tower defense, where a lot of enemies attack a point that you need to defend. And it's not as annoying as most tower defense style mechanics can be, because I don't really particularly like that type of gameplay style. But here... It's a lot more manageable and fun. They, they did something similar in Ease 8, but it wasn't as integrated into the story as this is. The combat itself is still excellent. It's an action RPG, so you have your regular attack, and then typically you'll have up to four different special attacks equipped that use 
special attack points that are actually shared among the party. And it replenishes really fast, but it can also deplete really fast depending on how much your attack costs. So management of that bar is key. You can switch to any other character in your party with just a press of a button and immediately where you're standing, the character you are playing as will switch. You won't warp to where they are on the map, they'll warp to you. And then again, you'll have access to their slate of abilities, but if you used up all your SP and it's starting to slowly charge back up, even if you switch to another character, it's going to be reduced. Not a real big issue because, again, it replenishes so fast and you get items eventually to increase the pool of points you have to use special abilities. That's nice. The characters play different enough that it's fun to experiment and find like which characters you like and which ones you want to invest more time in. Everybody levels up regardless if they're in battle or not, which I always find to be really helpful. I hate it when you have more characters than you can include in a party and the reserve characters stay under leveled and then it's a lot harder to go back and try to use them. You're encouraged to mix and match and it actually benefits you to do so. And I, I really enjoy how they've laid that out. Now, if you're just there for the gameplay, I think it's a decent game. The story is not so great, and there's a lot of fetch-type side quests and a lot of stupid crap. I mean, like, into Chapter 5, which I feel like is well into the game, I got a request, I guess, where somebody found a toy rabbit, and they're like, we don't know whose this is. And so you track down which little girl had the rabbit and lost it, and you give it back to her cool like that's some level one fight rats in the dungeon type shit but so far throughout the game i'm doing weird stuff like that alongside seemingly more important side quests and they're they're kind of given the same narrative weight the story itself is so boring that at times i find it hard to encourage myself to go back to it but then given enough time i'm like ah let me let me push a little further so i am slowly making my way through it, but it doesn't have the same pull that Ease 8 did. And I think even Derek admitted back when he talked about Ease 9 that he felt Ease 8 was still the superior game. And I, I have to agree. I think if you're a big fan of the Ease series, you're going to get what you come for. But I think if you're trying to compare it directly to the previous installment, you're going to see where it lacks. Now, maybe my opinion will change as I get further in the game. Maybe I'll even start to get attached to the characters. Who knows? There are already some beats in this story that are really rubbing me the wrong way. Ease is a little horny, but it seems more reserved in this game. There's only one character that's overtly sexualized, but it's not near as bad as Japanese games can be. And I think it's fine for a character to be sexualized if it makes sense story-wise. Here it seems incidental, but again, it's not overly played to be gross. Whereas in Ease 8, it's like every girl in the story, no matter what their age was, which was very creepy was attracted to the main character, and I wasn't really a big fan of that. In this one, though, there were actually some capitalist pro-corpo undertones, not even undertones, overtones, very early on in the game. Basically, when you're doing the chapter for the first additional monstrum to your party, you're introduced to this company called the Pendleton Company. It's a very rich, prosperous store in the town, so they're basically a corporation. And they've been robbed, and so they hire you to investigate who robbed them. And then you find out that one of the monstrums actually took the money. And I'm not running too much of the story, but if you want to skip ahead, feel free. I'm just going to quickly get the story out without too many spoilers. So the monstrum is taking the money, and they're 
giving it to the poor. There's actually a section, a poor section of town called Shantytown, because of course it is. And you see a couple of scenes where they're giving out the money, but then the people who receive the money, they're showing them be really greedy and aggressive about getting the money. And then characters go around openly saying, I'm never going to work again. All I need to do is get this money. And I'm not even going to give it to my wife. I'm going to go drink it all and gamble it all. And there's just this strong, overt message that corporations good giving money to the poor bad because they're just going to spend it on gambling and booze and drugs and whatever. They even mention a character that was sort of against Pendleton being a large corporation and putting profits over people that like, yeah, sure, sometimes they seem to put profits above all else, but they're not all bad. So they're very forgiving of the corporation while being very condemning of giving any kind of charity to somebody who is less fortunate not even deigning to attempt to go into the underlying reason why there might be a lower class in the town and what causes that. Just, it's it's personal responsibility, it's bootstraps, everybody chose to be poor, fuck them. Not really a big fan of that at all. So, I thought I would point that out. I find it interesting that other folks who played the game haven't spoken on it yet, but maybe they have, who knows. Lastly, before we get in the backlog, I said a couple of weeks ago that I was going to switch my workout routine to play Ring Fit Adventures, and I did that. So I wanted to talk about my experience with Ring Fit over the last couple of weeks. Now, interestingly enough, <laughs> I only lost like one pound, which I, one pound in two weeks, it's respectable, I guess. But I find that keeping the exercises up or keeping a routine up in ring fit has a couple of challenges and not in a bad way. First off, the way that they structure the exercise, I mean, day one, I was exhausted. I actually had to take two days to recover after just initially playing. I was like, wow, whatever I was doing before was bullshit compared to this because I am sore. It's a very like leg day heavy game i found it having me do a lot of squats and so my legs were just like wrecked for a couple of days but if for those who are unfamiliar ring fit adventures attempts to weave in like a turn-based rpg and a narrative into exercising so the character that you play as they find this exercise ring and you yourself have a peripheral that's basically a resistance ring you can pull on it to stretch it out or push it in and that'll work, obviously, different muscles. You also have a leg strap that will track your leg movements. So one Joy-Con goes in, like, the stress wheel, and the other Joy-Con goes in the leg strap. It can track when you run and do different leg exercises, and it can track different exercises that use both your legs and the wheel, yada, yada, yada. The story is you pick up the wheel, you inadvertently release a buff Chad dragon who like wears a workout leotard and is like, ha ha ha, I'm going to go off and exercise in a bad way or something. I don't know. And then the wheel is actually sentient and works with you to try to track him down and stop him and like redeem him, I guess. And the way that the game plays out is you have usually a course, like an obstacle course where that you run through. And the faster that you run, the more in sync you are. You can use the ring to like pull it out and suck in like coins that can be spent on items or like special coins for like a Super Mario Brothers type score. You can also push in the ring to blow out puffs of air to destroy things or open doors. And eventually you can do different uh, ab exercises to 
remove barriers from your path. While you're doing all this, using the ring to help yourself float and do different platforming moves, and again, all of it works you out and stresses different muscles, especially in the upper body, you'll run into random encounters. And the monsters you fight, the way that you fight them, and then eventually the big bad, is through competing exercise power, quote-unquote. And basically, you pick different exercises to do, and then as you do the reps, the enemies take damage. And it's surprisingly effective. I actually found myself having a lot of fun with it. I don't think it's enough to get somebody into exercise who is not ready to exercise. But if you're in the mindset like, I'm looking for a routine, I am going to exercise... This is a lot of fun, so I highly recommend it. The game is slow to open up. There's an opening movie. Like, I'm sitting there ready to exercise, and I'm, like, waiting while they get the story out of the way. And they kind of over-tutorialize you a bit. But once you get past the first chapter, it really starts to kick up. And then eventually they color code exercises to enemies. So it helps kind of gently guide you to use certain exercises because they're good against groups or certain exercises because they're good against the type of enemy that you're fighting. And again, that's a really effective way to not force you to do certain exercises, but guide you toward certain exercises, which I found a lot of fun. And there are other things besides the stage I described. You might run into different mini games. There's like a -a whack-a-mole game where when I move the ring, a ring on the screen would move, and then I would position it so that if I pushed it in or pulled it out, pistons would like hit these little moles that pop up, and basically I'd have to stamp them down as fast as I could. There are balance games where you have to like hold dumbbells on either side and then like lean left and right to pick up coins and avoid bombs. Lots of cool little mini games like that. You can do those outside of the story or just encounter them naturally through the story. And there's also, outside of the main story, rhythm games that you can play using the ring and and a combination of like pushes and pulls and turns and squats. And they actually incorporated some Nintendo music. You can play with the Super Mario Odyssey theme song, you know, like, it's time to jump up in the air. Also, Breath of the Wild, a melody from that that was actually really good. I was like, I jammed to this regularly. This is a nice melody. They have some Splatoon music. They have some classic Wii Fit tunes. And then, of course, music from the actual game. The music in this game isn't super great. It's pretty generic, sometimes just downright, not not bad, just very bubblegum, I guess, and not in a fun way. If you think bubblegum, like, ooh, pop, not really. <laughs> it is the most like domain-free, uh, lazily written bullshit that I've heard in a while. It doesn't like make the experience bad, but it's just there to serve a purpose to get you moving, right? Overall, I think if you're ready to exercise, it's sustainable. I'm gonna try to do more sessions. Honestly, going through just like a chapter or a level usually consists of like two or three of those travel levels while you do random battles and usually a fight with the main dragon boss at the end. And after like a full one of those, I'm wrecked. (laughs) Like I'm good to go. I am uh, like tired and feeling completely worked out. So it's really effective at doing that. And interestingly enough, and this could be a placebo effect, I don't know, and I've been working out prior to this the last couple of months, but I've noticed in the last couple of weeks some definition forming around my chest area. I was like, oh, hey, check me out. You know, oh, all right. All right now. So (laughs) I don't know if I can attribute that to ring fit, but there is a lot of like 
muscles around that group that are worked, not even doing push-ups, just standing exercises because of the way that you manipulate the ring. That's really cool, especially for me, because obviously those are areas that I want to work. It's not going to make you buff. You're not going to bodybuild with it. But if you're looking to get in shape and sculpt a bit, I mean, you could do a lot worse than ring fit, to be honest. All right, so I'll keep up with that, and I'll check in with you guys two weeks from now to let you know how things are going, if I've given up or not, if I've gained weight, if I've lost weight. Who knows? Maybe I only lost a little bit because I gained a little bit of muscle. I don't know. Without further ado, let's get into the backlog and the final episode of Mystical Ninja starring Goemon, where we finished the back half in the last two weeks. I completed the game actually today, as of the time of recording, and... I had fun from start to finish. The only frustrating parts, which I was mitigated a little bit because I was using save states, which obviously would have been a little bit more frustrating if I was playing on the N64, but we know the tragic end of that story, unfortunately, with the memory card. It's just the camera management and some of the platforming. There seems to be a bit of a delay on the jump, and that plus trying to manage the wonky camera, I think, is what really does it. If the jumping timing was a little bit more tight and the camera was better, this would be a nigh-perfect game for me. One of the things I noticed, which I'm not sure if I talked about last week, was the dungeon music actually layers as you get further into the dungeon. So it'll start off with a simple track, still really good in its own right, but then they kind of amp it up and layer it on as you get further in and closer to the boss. It's a really nice touch. I don't know if this is the first game to do it, probably not, but I can't think of any other examples right now. So really into that. The humor was pretty much maintained throughout. It was very irreverent, very silly. I was chuckling. I really do like the attention to detail put into the game to try to inject it with as much variety and color and life as possible. I think they did a really good job with the game. The boss designs were fun and varied and interesting. You use the impact robot like the Voltron-style giant robot for three different boss fights, including the end of the game. And it just, again, felt different every time, which was interesting because you're still working with the same attacks, but the enemies themselves and the way that they came at you, it was difficult. I had to stay on my toes, especially for the last mission. So I'm going to quickly get into the story for folks who are following along so we can talk about how it went, and we'll wrap it up. So last we left off, I was about to enter the Peach Mountain Base Festival Temple. Went through that pretty fun environment. Got a, you know, a special weapon for Sasuke. And once you get to the end, you destroy a guard robot. And the fourth member of the Peach Mountain game, Sharon, appeared with one of the big bads. Her name is Kitty Lily. She's the second leader of the Peach Mountain Shoguns. Lily boasts that Kiyushu... I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, is a stage and asked Sharon to return to the base after buying some foundation for her. <laughs> Goemon and friends rush off to the bridge to Kyushu, and they find that their friend Omitsu from the original village that you started the game at is on her way to deliver dumplings. Goemon just stunned to see that she came all this way when it took us so much effort to get to the same spot completely forgets to warn her and when she gets across the bridge and the entire island actually rises up into the sky and now we have to figure out a way to try to follow it what's interesting is this is the only point in the game where they actually tell you to go see the fortune teller plasma man and when you do he tells you 
that you need to gather the fourth miracle item. You've collected three so far with the previous bosses of the previous dungeons, and then use that to ascend into outer space to catch the floating island. So you go through a couple of like, you know, get this for me and I'll give this to you, blah, 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 get some more powers. And you even actually do a dungeon that's called the Gourmet Submarine and it's completely food themed. So you're running around like giant pieces of sushi and across uh, crab grills. It's really interesting and fun. I mean, I've never played a game where I swam through miso soup with like giant chives floating through the water. Before we're able to actually get the last item, Lily appears again by hologram, like the big bads usually do to ridicule us. Danson pops in, the other big bad that we met in the previous part of the game. And they activate a self-destruct sequence on the ship that we're on. We escape by calling our robot. That's the second robot fight. We fight this giant mermaid robot. It's interesting. Through some back and forth, we eventually get the fourth miracle item. We get zipped up into space. Once we get through the dungeon, and this one was a little easier than the previous dungeons, but not by much. Maybe they were just trying to take it easy on us. At least the first part of the dungeon was easier. You find the wise man that originally was thought to have passed away when his house was destroyed. He upgrades our weapons to be stronger. And then we find out that the wise man actually built the robots and the beam that was used to kidnap Kyushu for their stage play in exchange for porn magazines because he's a bit of a lech. Now, in the actual N64 game, they say car magazines. That was edited from the original Japanese. I know this because I took a look at the wiki. So this pervy old man, and it's not like Japanese games haven't done this before. There was a pervy old man who liked dirty magazines in Dragon Quest XI, actually, interestingly enough. So they go ahead and proceed to fight the final boss, and it's in space, and you get to use your giant robot. It's a two-stage battle. You fight a giant ship, and then you fight like a giant robot. Good stuff. You win the day. The island floats back down to Japan gently. And at the end, a bunch of screaming girls just run at Goemon and crew. And Goemon and Ibisumaru think that the girls are appreciative that they saved Japan, but they're actually pissed because they really enjoyed the stage play. And they thought dancing, the main bad guy and leader of the Peach Mountain gang, was cute. And to be honest, you get to see part of their stage play before the final boss. And it was really cool. It was a neat sequence. The song was fun. I had a really good time. I was like, why are we fighting these guys again? Oh yeah, they're attacking people with giant robots and kidnapping people. Okay, fine. After the little joke ending where the girls attack them and you see a shoe go flying, you get credits. And that's it. That's uh, Mystical Ninja starring Goemon. As far as retro classic games from the N64 go... It was awesome. It doesn't get as much love as a Mario 64, and that's fine. I think the platforming in Mario 64 is much better. But I would argue that the boss battles in this game rival the creativity of boss battles in Mario Odyssey. And I'll stand by that. And the music, I'm going to say, is better. I'm sorry. I'm into it. <laughs> Definitely injected with a lot more humor from start to finish, which mirrors more like your Paper Mario. In fact, I would put it on par with Paper Mario, to be honest. For folks that are interested, it's a little hard to get the original cart, but it's not expensive. So if you have an N64 laying around collecting dust and you got a memory card, maybe buy one online. Check it out. Or you can do what I did after my memory card tanked. Go on to RetroArch. I mentioned the core that I used 
in the previous backlog episode, and I don't want to look it up now, but use that core, and it should run pretty smoothly. There is one dungeon where it occasionally tanked a little bit, and then in the final boss, it had some rough patches and emulating that perfectly, but 95% of the game ran really smoothly, so I can't complain. So that's going on. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere, because when we get back, I'll let you know what the next backlog game is going to be. That way you can join in and play along with us if you decide. There's already a lot of discussion about this game in the Discord, so more details to come. Be right back. And we're back. The backlog game for next week is going to be Outriders. For those who don't remember what Outriders is, it was the online-only co-op action role-playing game. I think it was developed by People Can Fly, and Square Enix published it. It had a bit of a rough launch, but the kinks all seemed to be worked out, and I played it when the demo came out, and I actually really enjoyed it, and other people in the Discord had mentioned that they would want to check it out as well. So, I believe you can play the game in teams of three, depending on how many interested parties we get. We may group up multiple teams working out in the Discord, and then we'll schedule times to play. If you want to join... Get in the show notes, check the link tree, join the Discord, go straight to the Backlog channel, and be a part of the conversation. If you want to play on your own, but maybe you want to pop onto a future episode of the Backlog, or you want to send in your thoughts, please feel free. I would be more than happy to either have you on, or read any feedback that you have about the game as you're playing through it with us. I would very much enjoy that. As far as how far we're going to get in the next couple of weeks... It takes about 15 and a half hours to beat, according to HowLongToBeat.com, but it also says that for 100% completion, you probably want to play around 60 hours. Not really sure how we're going to go about it, but I will, at least story-wise, pick a point that we want to get to before the next backlog episode. So for those who want to play along, we're going to try to play the game up through getting access to Trench Town. I tried to look up a walkthrough without spoiling the game too much for me, and it seems to be achievable that in two weeks that even a group of people could get to that point in the game. So we'll try that out. If we don't make it quite there, no big deal, but I don't think we're going to go past it for sure. So we're going to try to get access to be able to proceed to Trench Town, and once we do, that's where we're going to cut it off for this two weeks. And honestly, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one goes because this will be the first backlog game where I think we'll actually have some takers as far as people that want to join in, join the club, so to speak, and finish this game together. And I'm excited because I think this is a decent game to try to play. It's obviously multiplayer focused, so you already have the community aspect and there'll be some shared experience there. All right, that'll be the show this week. I'd like to thank you all for coming out to listen. Don't forget... New episodes are uploaded to our hub every single Friday at anchor.fm slash player2 is under the pod, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are played. This is our off week, so look forward to an episode of Gamer Friends dropping probably today or tomorrow. And then, of course, look forward to the last two weeks in gaming news a week from the day that this episode drops. For those interested in supporting the show, of course, you can click on the link tree and you can go to any one of our social media channels, follow, like, subscribe, share, comment, review, rate. All of that really helps us out and it doesn't cost you any money. If you would like to support the show 
monetarily, there's a way to do that. Now, we recently closed our Patreon because we're under the Gamer Friends Network, and so we decided to go ahead and consolidate. So if you click on the Patreon link in the link tree, it's going to take you to patreon.com slash join slash Gamer Friends Podcast. And the money that you pledge there will go towards supporting both of our shows. And we very much appreciate it. I haven't gotten with the Gamer Friends as far as adding in some benefits to joining for the patrons of the network itself, but I'll probably be doing that shortly. If anyone out there is a regular listener and you have suggestions about what you want to see for Patreon members, let me know. I'm definitely open to suggestions, and I really appreciate anybody considering becoming a patron, even if it's for a temporary amount of time. And I think that's going to be the show. So, once again, we appreciate you, we love you, we hope to see you next week. Take care.